Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. And your associate professor co-host, Katie Gordon. Katie, how are you doing today? I'm good. All views are my own, though, and not associated with my position at my university. Oh, well, we say that in the closing of the podcast, too, so it is stated in every episode, but it is good to sort of reiterate it. I'm redundant. At multiple points, every 45 (laughs) to 75 seconds throughout the episode. (laughs) Okay. It's not disruptive to the overall continuity at all. Not like our last episode where I always said Marvel's the Netflix is the Punisher. (laughs) I stopped at like halfway through. Even I was getting tired of it. Even you were tired of the joke. I was. Uh, So no current events, I don't think, sort of today. You know, we've kind of... Although today is kind of inspired by current events a little bit, right? Well, yeah, Yeah. that's actually a good point, Katie. Uh, So as part of the the hashtag MeToo movement, um, which is kind of the impetus for a lot of what we're talking about today, in addition to a lot of the uh, reports of various types of sexual assault that have come out um, across a variety of sort of... um, I don't know, domains of of employment, I guess, and just all over the place. Uh, It seems like more and more every day. One of my favorite podcasts, and yours too, if I can speak for both of us, trends like these, they've done a lot of covering it, and I think they even have a new segment on their podcast now, like, I don't know the exact name of it, where they talk about these cases, because it's a part of what we're hearing about right now. Sure, yeah, allegations of sexual abuse and harassment in, um, in press rooms, in Congress, in Hollywood, politicians, some in academia, mm-hmm. and it was, I mean, the cover, the person of the year were the silence breakers, people yes. who were speaking out about allegations towards harassers and sexual abusers. Yeah, so all of that kind of has been something that we've wanted to talk about uh, on the podcast and kind of led to today. So, you know, as a part of that hashtag Me Too movement, uh, a lot of people with lived experience have made really valuable contributions to this really important discussion about sexual harassment and sexual abuse. Um, We've also had a lot of experts uh, speaking out about how to improve certain work settings to reduce sexual harassment and abuse. And then we've got people in the press and elsewhere who have covered really important cultural aspects and the real serious negative effects on people's careers and well-being that the abuse can have. And we've been, you know, just really inspired by the bravery of the folks who have been speaking up and the folks who are working to make things better. And we've noticed just in some of the coverage that we've seen uh, that there's been some inaccurate or some missing information in the mental health realm specifically. And uh, that's uh, as, uh, you know, people with clinical psychology training, that's our expertise is mental health. So we thought this would be one way for us to contribute to the discussion is to talk about some of the uh, mental health disorders specifically that are uh, related to sexual behavior. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And I also want to mention the Me Too mm-hmm. movement um, was originally founded by Tarana Burke, which we mentioned in a mm-hmm. previous episode. And I really thought that that was 
I, I like the way that she approached that, which was her idea was that you could let people know that they weren't alone mm-hmm. and other survivors know that they weren't alone. And it had a way of expressing kind of compassion or where people were from. And then that she had been working within that as an activist for a long time with the Me Too campaign. And then Alyssa Milano, who has a huge following on Twitter, kind of also did a hashtag Me Too. I don't the way I understand it, she wasn't aware that Toronenberg mm-hmm. had already started that, but that took off. And so in the Time magazine issue, they had both of them yeah. appear in that. And so I just want to acknowledge Toronenberg's hard work, and then Alyssa Milano helped to spread some of that too. And so just like Brandon said, we're going to be talking about some of the mental health disorders that sometimes get thrown around or yeah. just kind of missing as part of the picture. When we're looking at the factors that are related to sexual harassment and abuse, there are a multitude of factors at, at different levels. And we're actually in the process of setting up a follow-up episode to this with someone who has expertise in the area who will talk about some of those more nuanced points. But what we want to do today is give the basic building blocks yeah. for some of that. So I do want to give a content warning that we'll be discussing some sexual abuse and some sexual behavior and some specific details related to sexual abuse in this episode. So if that stuff is uh, difficult for you or mm-hmm. distressing, I just want to give you a heads up yeah. a- about this episode so you can decide whether or not you want to keep listening. Absolutely. So there are a couple of points that we want to make just before we dive into the specific disorders, which like Katie said today, it's really kind of going to be an introductory sort of primer to some of those sexual uh, disorders or paraphilic disorders. So uh, just a couple of things before we get started. Um, Just please uh, know and and recognize that this is a, a really complicated and complex topic. So our scope today is really going to be limited to some of uh, the specific mental health disorders that underlie sexually abusive behaviors. Uh, But to be clear, there are people who sexually harass and abuse others who don't have any mental disorder or or they have one of the ones that we're not going to be covering today. And then on the flip side of that, there are people who have paraphilias who do not sexually harass or abuse people. So uh, just to kind of specify that before we dive into this. That's right. And that's something that I saw someone else pointing out. The term Mm -hmm. pedophilia has been used a few times in the press covering stories and and someone who um, studies that area talks about the, the that people can have pedophilia as a paraphilia but not act on that that there are some people who do that and so we're going to kind of talk about some of the distinctions there um, to be clear sexual abuse and harassment are never ever acceptable but what we're interested in doing here is raising awareness and some more information about a piece of the puzzle and the causes of sexual abuse and harassment, because in order to prevent sexual abuse and harassment, it's helpful to understand kind of the psychology of it, the cultural effects of it. And this is really part of our motivation here is that if we can raise some awareness about the mental health aspects that perhaps it can lead to prevention, perhaps people who struggle with some of these things can seek help. And so that's kind of where we're coming from. When I was a graduate student, I had a practicum placement, which is where you're a psychological trainee, you're supervised the whole time, but you you learn to do therapy. I worked in a correctional facility for three years. It included sex offenders, and I did individual and group therapy with individuals who were charged with sex offenses. And it was pretty common for people to say, well, why would you want to work with them? 
wouldn't you rather work with the victims? And I understand that perspective mm -hmm. a lot. And I have to say, going into it, I didn't know what to expect. But it, it was one of the major um, opportunities for, frankly, training and um, in my program. And so, um, you know, my thought was two things. If we can treat and prevent other people from being offended by using mental health treatment, that is certainly worth it. What I learned is that some, not all, but some of the people who were in there for sexual offenses had been victims as well. And there were a range of people that I treated, and there are certainly um, the mental health impacts on survivors, I should say. I'm, I'm sorry for um, some people don't like using the word victim, but for survivors um, is certainly important to address as well. And so this is kind of looking at both ends of it. How can we prevent this in the first place? Who, how can we help people who have been survivors of it? And so that's really our, our point of view here. But again, sexual abuse and harassment are never, ever acceptable, even as we try to understand why people might do these things. The purpose is to learn how to effectively prevent them. Mm -hmm. And to that kind of that end, uh, this area is not uh, an area of expertise for either of us. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about this in the past before. Um, if we're talking about uh, comic books or things like that and we get something wrong, meh, I'm okay. Last yeah. week I might have said something wrong about The Punisher. If someone tweeted at me, I would be okay with that, but I probably wouldn't go back and fix the episode. But this stuff is so important to us, and this is why we do this podcast, is to try to uh, disseminate uh, accurate, scientifically backed information about mental health and mental disorders. So to that end, today, uh, if you know about these disorders, if you hear us say something that we get wrong, please do tell us, and we will correct it. Um, this isn't going to be a real in-depth uh, kind of episode. It's going to be more of an overview. Uh, we're going to link some resources. So if you're interested in reading more, getting some more perspectives of some more in-depth information, that'll be there. But to that end, if you do hear us say something, just let us know. And we are happy to correct it because that's the whole point of this podcast is to have accurate and consumable information about mental health. Exactly. And, you know, as I mentioned, I have had some... <laughs> some experience. I was trained in doing therapy and mental health work with individuals who were incarcerated due to being convicted of sex offenses, um, both in group and individual therapy, as well as doing assessments to kind of judge risk. Um, and all this time I was in supervision, but that was about 10 years ago. So there are certainly some things I'm not up to date on. And that's where our, our expert in the follow-up episode mm -hmm. will will certainly help, but um, there are some main components that are this, that yeah. are the same. Yeah, and my expertise, or rather experience, I should say, uh, is is also uh, is limited, more limited than yours, Katie. Uh, I've I've not worked with individuals specifically with uh, sex uh, offenses or things like that. I have worked with perpetrators of domestic violence, though, and sometimes that could include elements related to sex. And certainly, sex was a component of the treatment for those individuals. Um, the the treatment that we used uh, in the program that I was a part of uh, was called the Duluth model. Uh, it stems of Duluth, Minnesota, and it really involves uh, uh, evaluating power and control and, and taking accountability for, or for behaviors and challenging some of the underlying uh, beliefs that lead to some of these behaviors uh, that uh, exhibit power and control over uh, a partner. And power is certainly something that mm -hmm. comes up in a lot of these situations mm -hmm. that often there are in the media reports, there are people who have more power by virtue of their age or position in their job or their uh, 
stature in the field or their status mm-hmm. in the field, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, those are interconnected for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So first we'll, we, we selected, um, paraphilic disorders to talk about. And as we, as we discussed, you know, there are people who are sexual abusers who don't have any of these and there are people who might have these, but are, um, not sexual abusers. So with that clarification, we'll, we'll talk about the basic diagnostic criteria of each. And then I can talk a little bit about the Mm -hmm. therapeutic approaches I use, but we'll go more into depth when our expert is on. So the DSM-5, which we've talked about before, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, has a section that talks about paraphilic disorders. And the definition of paraphilia is any intense and persistent sexual interest other than sexual interest and genital stimulation or preparatory fondling with phenotypically normal, physically mature, consenting human partners. So one thing that's important to talk about when you're talking about sexual behavior is that it's, as with all disorders, important to not pathologize people who have interests that maybe are not as common just because they're not common. And so with regard to this, the DSM makes it clear that a paraphilia is not necessarily a paraphilic disorder. So if someone has some kind of sexual interest, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a disorder unless it's causing distress or impairment to the individual, or if the paraphilia, if, um, if the satisfaction of the paraphilia entails personal harm, risk of harm to others. So in other words, paraphilias don't necessarily require a clinical intervention, only if it's a disorder, and a diagnosis should only be used for disorders, not for paraphilias that exist without the distress and harm. And so if we had to kind of break down the components here, basically there's a wide array of sexual behaviors that are not within the mental health field Mm -hmm. considered pathological. Mm -hmm. The main components are if the person is harmed in some way or if they're harming others, and if it doesn't involve consent. Yes. That's a, that's a that's simplistic, yeah. but... But captures, uh, captures it very well, I think. So so things that, the allegations that we've heard about recently, often a major issue is an issue of consent. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's, frankly, the person not consenting, saying mm-hmm. no, or they don't want to do that, or the person cannot consent by nature of their age. Right. And that's, so there's, um, there are legal structures mm-hmm. too, right? Legally, there are terms such as rape, age of consent, and um, and indecent exposure. And that's separate from the mental health classifications, mm-hmm. although there are some connections. Um, another issue has been in positions where the question is whether the person can consent. I already mentioned because of age, but sometimes it's because of power structure. Yes. So if it's a boss insinuating that their um, career is going to be negatively impacted mm-hmm. if they don't comply with what they want, mm-hmm. then that is also an issue where it's not full consent. So that's those are the the major ways that we protect against pathologizing kind of the normative mm-hmm. reins of consen- consensual sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with that being said, with all of that, with all of that being said, this is like the biggest like uh, disclaimer episode we've ever had. But it's important. It is important. Yeah. We we really, I mean, I I want to get this stuff precise. So. Absolutely, and and I guess another thing to kind of point out that's probably obvious at this point is this is an episode that's not going to involve any fictional characters yeah. or comics or anything yeah. like that. 
Uh, and I, I guess it's important to kind of remember the the main goal of the Jedi Council podcast is dissemination of mental health information. And 97% of the time, we can use comic books or movies as the vehicle through which we can provide that information. Uh, but that's not the case with this topic. But because it's so important to talk about and, and it's being talked about so much, we did want to contribute to the conversation, even though it might not fall in sort of the typical uh, Jedi Council wheelhouse that you might expect. Yeah. Yeah, so like one of the fictional, when I was thinking about fictional mm-hmm. representations, and there are a few good ones that I've seen, mm-hmm. I don't think they're usually widely viewed, mm-hmm. so I think about that too. One of the ones that I thought of that's widely viewed would be like the sexual harassment episode of The Office, but it's it's comedic, and I right. don't want to make light of exactly. the situation at all, so it's not appropriate. I'd rather kind of just stick to the facts for this. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, so that being said, um, the disorders that that we selected um, as seeming most relevant for what's been in the news, and we can expand on these some other time, are, um, oh, I should also say the paraphilic disorders, what they did for the DSM is that they picked the most common presentations, but they said that basically people can have paraphilias with a wide range of um, interests, but they kind of try to characterize some of the more common ones for all for the purpose of for clinicians and researchers to be able to identify the problem that the person is exhibiting mm-hmm. and um, do research on it and and to be able to tailor treatment to the specific issue mm-hmm. that they're presenting with. So maybe we'll start uh, off... Oh. But really quickly, sure. this is kind of besides the point and probably doesn't actually add anything to the conversation, so forgive me. Uh, I'm thinking of the McElroy brothers, though, and their, their phrase... Uh, don't yuck someone's yum, which yeah. is the point, which is silly, no, but no, that's no. the point yeah. of what, uh, why, why the DSM and why we are kind of belaboring the point of differentiating mm-hmm. between paraphilia and paraphilia. Right, disorders. right, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. If I, that was my one, my one little uh, levity that I'll bring to I, the episode. No, it, it's yeah. important though, because I mean, as we know, there are people, there are cultures and subcultures who have shame about like um, promote shame about certain types of sexual behavior. And I think that the DSM has taken some steps, though not perfect, to kind Mm -hmm. of prevent that from happening, Mm -hmm. basically, and really focus on when it becomes a disorder, Mm -hmm. you know. And also every problematic behavior is not a mental disorder either, right? And as we've talked about, there are some of these behaviors – they are a problem and the person doesn't meet criteria probably for right. a disorder. That happens in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that's why a lot of the interventions have to do with structural, yep. um, cultural types of interventions, not simply individual mental health interventions, mm-hmm. which are important too in yeah. some cases. And so I, um, so yeah, exactly mm-hmm. right. So, um, so the first one maybe we can mention, uh, is exhibitionistic disorder. And the difference between the paraphilias is really, the focus of what's happening, and then there, there are some different types. But as a brief overview, the diagnostic criteria is that over a period of at least six months, recurrent and intense sexual arousal from the exposure of one's genitals to an unsuspecting person as manifested by fantasies, urges, or behaviors. So you can see it kind of can be in fantasy form or urges mm-hmm. in that first criteria. The second thing is the individual has acted on these sexual urges with a non-consenting person. So again, if someone is fantasizing about this, but they're not acting on it with a non-consenting mm-hmm. person, they might still 
have some issues they want to deal with, or they might not, if, but if the disorder, yeah. Yeah, if they're experiencing distress over sure. those fantasies but not engaging in the behavior, they might still seek treatment for sure. Exactly, yeah. but to have a disorder, it has to involve a non-consenting person or the sexual urges or fantasies. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. And that was my fault. That was my fault. <laughs> no, it's okay. You were, you were clarifying a point, and then I uh, I muddied it. That's, a, <laughs> so. no. that's, that's, our, that's how we do. No, um, the... The main point is that, no, 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 that's exactly right. So the point is that the person has the fantasies, the urges, or behaviors, and then they act on them with a non-consenting person, or just as Brandon said, the urges or fantasies cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And so there are kind of some different subtypes in this, but just to give a basic overview, because I think that for people who do not, for example, have fantasies or find it sexually arousing to expose their genitals to other person mm-hmm. people, when you hear about that, and we've heard about that in some of the media reports, they're kind of like, well, why don't they just not do that? And I agree, they should definitely yeah. not do that. But there's also this underlying aspect of it, and that's often what's targeted in treatment, is that these the can these um, fantasies and urges can sometimes be reinforced because they're fantasizing about them and they're masturbating to them and that can reinforce the fantasies and that's one of the things when I was working in treatment that we would try to help them to come up with healthy fantasies that don't involve non-consenting people and cause less distress and things like that out of a, a basic behavior modification mm-hmm. model. Now, there are going to be people who range in severity and range in motivation to change these things, but having an understanding of this particular um, this particular type of behavior, I think, is helpful when you're trying to prevent people from doing that to others. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, uh, anything else we should say about no, that? No, I don't think so. Okay, so I guess... I guess the main thing when we're talking about stuff missing from media, I think the part to me that's been a little missing is the idea, again, it's never acceptable for someone to um, non-consensually expose their genitals to another person. However, I think that sometimes it's oversimplified and that the person should just not do that. Right. And they're not looking at underneath that they're, that they are having these urges that if addressed, we could be more successful mm-hmm. than just telling them to stop it because some of these people, they are distressed about mm-hmm. it, but they're having a hard time stopping, but they might not present for treatment because they're ashamed or they don't think there's mm-hmm. a way that they can get effectively treated for it. And so the whole goal is to make it, accurate information so that more people receive this treatment and less people are basically um, non-consenting people on the other end of this. A parallel might be thinking about if there was someone who was struggling with a major depressive episode, saying, just stop. Why don't they just stop that? Of course, the difference with someone who's suffering from depression and suffering who is uh, experiencing exhibitionist, geez, Exhibitionistic. Why can I not say this? It's got a lot of syllables. Too many for me. I Mm -hmm. I max out at four. Um, I'm not. I should have counted it before I said that. Uh, Anyway, anyway, is that there's a non-consenting adult at the other end of this? Yes. Of course, with depression, there's. It's kind of just a self-contained thing. No one else is typically impacted to the same level. Exactly, and that's and that's part of where. you know, that has to, that person has, to, you have to consider the other people that are directly affected too. And yeah. as we've said, that's the theme throughout. But if we want, for example, in the setting that I was working in, if it was someone who was convicted of exposing themselves to someone and we want them 
to be discharged and not do that again, then we really were trying to do some work with them to change their their sexual behaviors so that when they are released and no longer incarcerated, they don't repeat the behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Anything else for that disorder no. that I won't try to say again? No. Thanks well, I got bad shrink. news for you for the next. I time, know. Actually. I know. And this is what I'm going to take the lead on. So let's just see how this goes. Okay. So the second one that we're going to cover is frauderistic. Did mm-hmm. I say it right? You got it. Okay. I I know I'm I'm self conscious about my pronunciations. So. You're doing fine. All right. Frauderistic disorder. So uh, to outline the diagnostic criteria for this. So the first one is over a period of at least six months, recurrent and intense sexual arousal from touching or rubbing against a non-consenting person as manifested by fantasies, urges, or behaviors. And then the second uh, is the individual has acted on these sexual urges with a non-consenting person or the sexual urges or fantasies cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, other important areas of functioning. So kind of mirroring what we saw before. And then like before, there's some specifications as well. But that's kind of the take-home uh, kind of behavior or, or fantasy underlying fraudulent disorder is uh, related to uh, some of the reports maybe possibly that we've heard about some of the groping behaviors. Yeah, exactly. That certainly, and I haven't heard anyone mention the possibility of those individuals oh. having fraudulent disorder, and maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. I we, we don't purposely know. stick to diagnosing fictional right. characters to talk about this stuff because it's it it would be inappropriate and unethical to talk about people who we have we haven't evaluated and there's not Mm -hmm. enough public information and we can take some liberties with fictional characters without harming someone some assumptions about their behaviors or their emotional experiences or their urges or what they're thinking or feeling exactly Mm -hmm. but this is a possibility again because i think the other thing that has been i think some people have struggled with i know i have is that if someone can do all these great things in one realm, how could they be allegedly groping mm-hmm. people repeatedly? And I don't know mm-hmm. in the no, you know the known people that have been in the media or anything, but one possibility, again, is that there's this element where the person is not controlling themselves. And um, even if they, they're, they're a good, whatever that means, they do mm-hmm. good in several domains, um, they do the, They could do this horrible thing as well, where they're groping non-consenting people, mm-hmm. and and um, maybe because some of it feels like they can't control it. Now, the other thing to mention here too, of course, we've talked about the mental health piece and how you'd address that, is also a main structural thing which we're not going into. But is the person receiving negative consequences mm-hmm. for their behavior? If they don't, then that can be make it even harder for them to control their behavior or make it even such that they have less obstacles to mm-hmm. groping non-consenting people because maybe they have these fantasies and urges and know that they can get away with it. And that's why it's important to, at multi multiple levels, work to prevent sexual abuse. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, sociological or cultural or systemic factors that... Uh, other experts can certainly say more about than we can. That's why we're just really honing in and focusing on kind of the specific mental health for today. Yes, that's right. So we're going to mention one other one that has also been in the news related to some. So this is um, which is pedophilic disorder. Sometimes people call it pedophilia. Um, 
This is over a period of at least six months, recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, sexual urges, or behaviors involving sexual activity with a prepubescent child or children generally aged 13 years or younger. The individual has acted on these sexual urges or the sexual urges or fantasies cause marked distress or interpersonal difficulty. If the individual is 16 and they're at least five years older than the child or children, um, then they may also fit for this disorder, but the, the DSM specifies to not include an individual in late adolescence involved in an ongoing sexual relationship with a 12 or 13 year old. So they draw a lot of lines in there. Yeah. And again, this doesn't always map onto legal restraints. Right. And, and, and so that's why we're focused on the mental health. Now this has come up with a couple of different mm-hmm. allegations for people. Um, and I will say that individuals who are having non-consensual relationships and, and often they cannot be consensual. For example, if the, um, if it's someone who is in their who's an adult who's in their 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever it is and they're targeting or they're um being predatorial towards someone who is 14 or 15 that's usually below the age of consent and there's a power differential and age difference so they they basically are considered not able to consent by law because of the because of their young age however um one thing that is Again, I, when we're talking about media representations, is there are individuals who seem to um, specifically target teenagers that were significantly younger than them and can be below the age of consent, but don't fit into the criteria of a prepubescent child or children. Um, and sometimes that's referred to as hebophilia. That's not listed as a main one in the disorder, um, but that's... That's one thing I've seen. The other thing I've seen is that, um, as mentioned in all of these disorders, there are can be people who have these urges but don't act upon them, and um, you know not and are very distressed by it actually, but might not seek help because of how distressed right. they are about it. And and so that's another reason that having accurate information out there is important. We much rather have someone who is dealing with this. And is it some fear that they're going to harm someone present for treatment oh, yeah. so we can try the best to prevent that from happening than have them not go for treatment because they people will assume they've acted on these behaviors, right? And so, it's again, it's all about preventing sexual abuse. And so that's why accuracy in media helps. And there have been some that really reach out to experts and, and that type of thing. And I'm not trying to be overly particular about language, but just the goal of our podcast is to kind of send out some more of that accurate information because there are specific treatments tailored to these different disorders. Okay, so those are the means we're going to talk about. We're going to talk more about treatment in the follow-up episode, but I will just briefly say that sometimes medications are are used to reduce individuals' sex drives. Um, I don't know much about that because the individuals I worked with, none were on medication. Mm-hmm. Um what what I tended to do in the treatment program I was in was cognitive behavioral therapy. So it really focused on disrupting the positive reinforcers for the sexual urges and the sexual behaviors, trying to create more empathy for other people so they could understand the people that they're targeting that perspective better and challenging distorted cognitions that they had 
you know, things like she's if she says no, but you keep on persevering, she'll eventually say yes. Or she said no, but she probably means yes because of what she's wearing or how mm-hmm. she's acting. So we would directly challenge those types of things because sometimes we'd find that those individuals would grow. Now there's there's a big diversity and in sexual offenses and the underlying psychology motivating it. But in some cases, some of the young men that I worked with were raised in environments where they were given these really um, distorted, harmful messages about relationships with other people and power and misreading cues and had negative attitudes towards people. And you could really work to correct some of those things. You know, and and also, again, not being able to understand the impact that they're having on the survivors. So working on that all paired with behavioral techniques to control their behavior, control their urges and try to as much as can. Again, it depends on the individual um, alter their fantasies and something into something that is more healthy. And for those who, you know, um, Behavioral techniques like maybe having the fantasy, having things that they think of that disrupt the arousal. So that's extremely brief. And like I said, it's somewhat dated, but I'm going to link to, um, I contacted two experts to make sure this website was good. I'm going to link to two websites actually, but one of them that's, that's really helpful is for ATSA, which is the, um, See, this happened with the last acronym too, which is the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. They have a comprehensive prevention um, link. They have informed policy, effective practice, and they try to use research to inform this. And I think that they do uh, make a great contribution to society. So anyway, I'll link to that if you'd like to know information, more information about that. Yeah. Otherwise, that's kind of it for this episode. Yes. Uh, we'll probably, uh, we're lining up our, our expert uh, guest uh, host, guest host, is that what do we usually call it? Our guest our star. Guest star. I like that too. Uh, which uh, we'll dive into, I think, some more technical detail when we get to there. And if you have questions for him or for us, mm-hmm. then it would be great. You can message them to us on Twitter or you can email them to us and we can we can ask him while he's on. Yeah, absolutely. But, but hopefully this just sets the basics yes. so that we can get to some of the more nuanced points when we get to him. Absolutely. So I think we'll probably cut it off for there today and return back uh, shortly. So uh, thank you so much for listening in and you'll hear from us uh, next week. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.